This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Welcome to Beehive Banter. I'm NBR senior journalist Maria Slade, not Grant Walker, as you can see. But as usual, we are joined by our political editor, Brent Edwards, to have a look back over the week's events. And um, Brent, there's been plenty of political posturing as the parties continue to campaign for votes. And much of it's revolving around arguments about money and who can afford what. And we had the Treasury pre-election economic and fiscal update, of course, uh, this week. And while it's not as gloomy as some might have predicted, the numbers still aren't that flash, are they? No, I mean, the numbers aren't that flash in terms of what the government's got to play with. I mean, what's clear is that any future government, whoever uh, takes the Treasury benches after the October 14 election, is going to be fairly constrained in what what they can do. And they'll face some tough choices about spending and whether to cut some spending or, you know, as some other people suggest, maybe some tough choices about... um, you know, you've got options when you don't have a lot of money coming in. And one of the things is the tax takers down below forecast. That's one of the big drivers of why the books. So you either maybe look at cutting back on spending, which actually this current government's already looking at savings. And we've got National promising to cut spending even more. Um, or the other option is you try and raise more revenue by raising taxes, which uh, apart from some of the minor parties, the Green parties, no one is really suggesting. Well, of course, National's got itself into quite a pickle over this um, tax plan of it and how it might fund it. Um, Has it come up with any decent answers, in your view? Look, not. it hasn't really specifically answered some of the very direct criticism that has come from a number of people, and now more latterly from a couple of economists who put out a report overnight specifically saying, I think, looking at the, you know, part of National's um, way of funding its tax cut program was to introduce this foreign buyers tax would allow foreigners to start buying property again, but only worth more than $2 million, but it would impose a tax on those sales. And a number of people have said that its assumptions were a bit heroic, and um, the latest analysis reckons it's about $500 million or so short of what it would what National says it would earn. And basically, National's response to that is, trust us, we know what we're doing and we're confident. Um, and <laughs> but it doesn't specifically respond to the criticisms and it refuses to put out the modelling, the detailed modelling that led it to those conclusions. So um, so still question marks over that. I mean, as, as a number of economists say, you know, in the context of a budget of billions and billions of dollars, and we've already seen in the pre-election update, billions have disappeared. The numbers aren't that great in the sense of what you lose, but it does go a little bit to the credibility of National because it's been running this argument for a long, long time that, you know, the the Labour government is uh, has economically has mismanaged the economy, mismanaged the books, is hopeless. Trust us, we know what we're doing. But then it can't actually respond um, robustly to some of this criticism about its own numbers. 
And two million is the price of an average house around central Auckland too. So that always um, amuses me <laughs> that somehow this, these luxury homes that all these overseas buyers are going to come in and buy. But anyway, look, you know, there's been plenty of other promises this week too. We've got Labour promising uh, to, you know, train more doctors. We've got National wants a new medical school, school at Waikato. Can we afford either of these things? Well, I, I guess... I mean, you could turn the question around when it comes to, to doctors and the health system. And if you look at the strain that health services are under, and I think probably anyone who's, you know, needed health care and would probably all have experienced some delay, maybe waits, et cetera, because of the strain. So maybe it's not a question of whether we can afford to do it, or is it more a question of whether we can afford not to do it? And uh, but that's that's where some of these tough decisions will be made. You will have to make priorities, and probably I think most people I suspect would say, well, a priority would be to ensure that the health system is robust. Um, and part of that, you need doctors and nurses, um, and that becomes even more apparent when you look at the population rise. You know, now that the borders are opened, record number of net gain of um, migrants. Um, you know this year, that sort of thing, which is going to keep on putting more and more pressure on services like health. So, um, but the interesting thing is, I guess, from the parties is where they find the money, where does that money come from to do that? What what will be squeezed, I guess, to ensure that you do train enough doctors? Meanwhile, evidence that Winston Peters is coming back. You can't keep him down or can you? Well, yeah, I mean, this will be his second comeback, I guess, second time he's risen from the political dead. And, I mean, it was interesting this week, everyone got excited over the the One News variant poll, and I think uh, One News, six o'clock bulletin I was watching, had a sort of breaking news banner, you know, about New Zealand First back. Well, there have been a number of other polls that have had New Zealand First over 5%. So this one poll is not, you know, it's not the only one. It's not a shock. Um, and, you know, look, it, it follows a fairly um, typical path for New Zealand First where they tend to poll really badly between elections, but they always um, come up, you know, at election time. And and even when they were knocked out in 2008 and then again in 2017, New Zealand First always got over a bit over 4%. You know, it wasn't like its vote completely collapsed. So it's it's always got this solid base. So it's not surprising. And, um, you yeah, know, you'd, you'd be... a uh, to bet against Winston Peters not being back in Parliament, you, you know, you, that'd be quite a odds, I think. So, you know, looking at a number of polls, it, it does seem that um, there is a momentum now for New Zealand First. And I think it looks as though it might be taking a little bit of support away from ACT, particularly around those issues to do with co-governance and, you know, Winston Peters strong on that and kind of, you know, the comments he's made recently that Māori are not Indigenous and all those sorts of things, playing on all those issues. Um, which has probably undermined some of the um, messages that ACT have been giving around that sort of area. But I think to ACT, though, it looks as though they might be losing a bit more support to National. National seems to be strengthening, and that's largely at the expense of ACT by the look of it. Just four weeks till Election Day, and uh, importantly, over two weeks until early voting starts. Um, we've got the televised leaders' debates coming up. Will they shift public sentiment? Is there time? Uh, yeah, well, that, that will be, I mean, I think the Labour Party w would hope, 
would hope so. Um, some of those leaders' debates may be an opportunity for Chris Hipkins to perhaps get some of the momentum back because um, clearly, you know, when you look at the trend of the polls, Labor is struggling a bit. But, you know, they'd, they'd still look at their, their numbers, the Green Party's numbers to Party Māori and, and say that are still kind of have a chance. I mean, no party is going to give up. No, you know, it's it's still there's still an election to be held. So I guess they will be hoping that those um, leaders' debates um, are ones where perhaps Chris Hipkins can do well and um, show Labour off in a better light, and and perhaps you know hope that Christopher Luxon might stumble a bit, possibly um, the first one next week. But as you say, early voting is only just over two weeks away now. So it's a real urgency about it now for political parties because, you know, we keep on talking about the October 14 election, but in fact, people will be voting almost two weeks before then. And if the last election is any guide, most people will have voted by the time of election day. So, you know, parties can't leave it too late to try and grab attention. And, um, you know, they're doing all sorts of things from, I suppose, Christopher Luxon, you know, dressing up as a pirate, you know, Chris Hipkins visiting the love shack, you know, we had the Green Party co-leaders, you know, buying records at a record store. You know, they're all doing all sorts of things that will attract cameras and what have you, and they're putting a lot of stuff out on social media. So um, certainly heating up. Um, and um, but, but those leaders' debates here between the two major party leaders, you know, they, they, will, be, they will be interesting. Um, whether they shift anything, I'm not sure. Thanks, Brent Edwards. That's Beehive Banter for this week. And Grant Walker will be back next week. Thanks for watching. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Tax policy is always a fraught political issue, particularly during an election campaign. To discuss that, I'm joined by Oliver Shaw, Director, Robin Oliver. I want to start with a general question. Is an election campaign a good time to be doing tax policy? Well, <laughs> it's not the best, is it? Uh, that it's uh, lots of issues floating around, lots of politics and people, politicians obviously trying to garner votes by populistic slogans and what have you, and taxes quite complex, but um, tax is quite central to democracy and an election is about democracy, so it is reasonably understandable that tax will be at the centre, but it really is the broad thrust of parties' positions on tax rather than, I think, the, the detail of, um, of specific measures that people should focus on. Because, I mean, we've got both the major parties, Labour with the idea of taking GST off uh, fruit and vegetables, the National Party with its tax policy trying to hone in on, I guess, providing tax relief to that squeezed middle. I mean, the political parties there, they seem to be, the tax policy seems to be driven by meeting the needs and therefore presumably attracting the votes of a particular constituency. Is that helpful? No, uh, not really. Uh, but, uh, it, I mean, it, it's it's where the fundamentals of tax policy should be. Um, the National Party one is really signalling uh, there should be reductions in the level of taxation. 
Um, and I think that's the message and that this process of what people call fiscal drag, where the tax rates res remain the same, wages go up to compensate for inflation, and tax uh, eats more and more as a percentage of people's income, uh, that's a valid issue. And that's that's the issue here. Should that be allowed? And uh, um, National says no, and I assume Labour says, well, uh, that's how we fund government. Um, I think when it comes to things like uh, GST on um, uh, fruit and vegetables, I don't support that policy. I don't think any uh, uh, specialist uh, supports it um, because it's undermines the basis of a uh, GST tax, which is low rate and broad base. But um, so you're you're seeing two parties: one saying we'll um, you know reduce the government expenditure, presumably, and keep on reducing uh, keep tax rates from increasing. And the other party uh, uh, seems to be saying we'll give specific, very specific tax concessions um, to uh, selected audiences. Do you think the National Party's um, rationale, though, for trying to make up, obviously, to pay for the proposed tax cuts they've put up, um, and obviously there's been some debate and discussion around, for instance, this um, foreign buyers tax, the, the tax on foreigners buying homes over $2 million, I mean, is that an issue? Have you, does that give you any reason to have concern? Well, I, I, I think that's actually a distraction and pretty much irrelevant, really. It's, a, I suppose, a credibility issue, I understand it. But the numbers the government in the government's books um, in terms of expenditure and revenue are in the billions of dollars. And these numbers float around so much a, a billion doesn't really make much difference. It's a rounding error. We've got upcoming next week, I think, is the pre-election forecasting update, pre-food. That will be followed by a December update, which will be followed by a budget update next year. And both of those have billions of dollars of changes in them, up or down. And I think we should more focus on what the intent of the policy is and hold politicians who win accountable for delivering. And we shouldn't worry about nickels and dimes and a few hundred million dollars And as the numbers right. I just think that's a total distraction. We've, we've had a number of tax working group reports now, and then the other week the International Monetary Fund, I think, repeated probably recommendations or advice or suggestions it's made a number of times about talking about, you know, perhaps the introduction of a capital gains or land tax, doing the tax thresholds and reducing company tax rates. Is it possible to have a discussion and reach an agreement on the structure of the tax system and then, I guess, leave it to the political parties to argue about how much they'd tax? Oh, well, I think political parties might have different views on the structure of the tax system itself. And I think when you come to tax, the first issue is expenditure. Because in one way or the other, over time, what is spent has to be raised in taxes. So the first issue of looking at taxes is how much is government expenditure increasing? The more it increases, the more 
pressure it puts on the tax system, number one. Number two, what's the purpose of the tax system? And I think it's obvious, and it has been a consensus for since the 1980s, that the purpose of tax is simply to raise the money to fund the government and doing that in the most efficient way possible, the lowest cost way, particularly in terms of economic costs by distorting decisions to save, invest and work. And so that's a that's a model of, and, and, and if, you, if you have consensus on that, then you can easily analyse these issues you've talked about. However, in the recent few years, the issue has been raised the tax system should be more used to redistribute income. And that's called the fairness debate. That's where wealth taxes, I think, come in and uh, various aspects of that and somewhat capital gains tax. And what's that saying is, no, the tax system is not just about raising money. It's about redistributing income from high-income earners to low-income earners. And I think that there's a in total inconsistency there between the two. One is raising money efficiently, cost as low a cost as possible. The other is using the tax system to redistribute income. Well, if you use the tax system to redistribute income, it's going to be a high cost, have a high economic cost. And I'll just illustrate that in one way. If you want to use the tax system to redistribute income, you have to have the company tax rate close to, if not equal to, the top personal rate. Otherwise, people will earn the income of the company rather than individually. That would mean we increase the company tax rate from 28% to something close to 39%. And that would have enormous impact on investment and productivity and wages. And I think that would be a bad thing. But that's what that's if you if you change the objective of tax away from raising uh, 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 revenue for the government, and you go into this fairness issue, you're automatically raising these sort of issues. And I think that's a number one issue uh, on tax policy at the moment. Isn't the fairness issue, though, and I think it's raised in the IMF report, is around, for instance, um, and this, I guess, comes back to capital gains tax, that you should tax income no matter how it is made, so that if people make income off capital gains, I, you know, income that they actually earn, they should be taxed the same as someone who earns income from work? That's I, I see that as a an efficiency uh, issue, because if you... Yep. If you don't tax one form of income and tax another, that will create a distortion, encouraging people to obviously invest in the low tax form. So in, the, in that framework, that's how I would, I see the capital gains issue. But if you're looking at the other framework as, in terms of wanting to redistribute, you're looking at a completely different uh, framework. And... Uh, we used to have a consensus of the efficiency one, but now people have raised the fairness one. Well, that creates a completely different tax system and completely different arguments. And it's hard to – you're not on the same wavelength when you discuss these issues if you're thinking about redistribution versus efficiency. So, I mean, when you're looking at all the parties, I mean, do you have concerns around what might happen to tax depending on 
which parties which parties form the next government? Um, well, the, the the real issue is about I, I, I'm very much in favour of what we've had consensus since the 1980s that tax is about raising money efficiently to for the government to spend it on our social objectives, health, education, welfare, and all that. Um, I'd be very concerned if the tax system would start to be used to redistribute income because I think that's massively high economic cost and, um, and, and fraught with problems. And I, if you look at Labour and National, there's not a lot of difference between them, really. I mean, um, I mean, you know, GST and fruit and vegetables is not the biggest issue in the world. National's... Um, um, changes to the tax rates on individuals is pretty marginal, the overall scheme of things. But once you're talking about a wealth tax uh, in particular, or and the capital gains tax is neither here nor there, to be honest, within that framework, but a tax on unrealised capital gains, which is similar to a wealth tax, that's where you, you're changing your entire way you think about taxation. And there are arguments people can raise, but I think a, a, a going down that line will absolutely um, reduce investment, reduce productivity because there's less money to invest, reduce wages and impoverish the country. Robin Oliver, thank you for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The latest pre-election economic and fiscal update might have contained some dismal forecasts, but voters should be relieved that they at least have a clear view of the state of the government's books. It wasn't always the case, and to talk about that, I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Well, thank you for joining us, Brent. I think you're going to take me back to 1990, back before I was even a glint in my father's eye. What happened then? Well, back in 1990, um, you had the, the 1990 election and which the National Party won to um, go into government after six years of a Labour government. And what National found when it got into government was a couple of things. Firstly, it faced the prospect of a $600 million bailout of the BNZ, and also that the, the government's the deficit was about $1.5 billion or so, worse than the um, the budget update had revealed. And so if you think back then, um, government was spending about $25 billion a year, so $1.5 billion was a big part of, of, of that budget. So things were a lot, lot worse um, than um, they had anticipated. Um, and as a, a consequence of that, um, the then uh, Finance Minister, Ruth Richardson, made a number of changes. And one of them was to bring in this pre-election update. And the first pre-election economic and fiscal update was actually done um, for the 1993 election. So it kind of fed on to, I guess, even even more transparency around the government's books. Well, we got out, you know, got a peek at the government's books yesterday with that latest update. What do they tell us? How do they compare? Well, I guess in one way, you know, there was there were stories beforehand and speculation before it came out suggesting it was going to be really terrible and, you know, like talking about tens of billions of dollars of a fiscal hole and the like. Um, and, and I think the government 
probably relatively happy for that speculation to be to allow it to run in a way, although I kind of dismissed it at the time because it's it's not as dismal as that, but it is dismal. It, the, the books are in worse shape than the budget back in May. So um, the deficits are now going to last for another year. Now forecast not to get into surplus until 26, 27, which is a year later than the budget forecast. And by the end of the forecast period, which is 2027, um, net debt is going to be $13 billion higher than forecast in the budget. So overall, what it shows is a very, very tight constraint on, on government spending. I mean, on the good side, the, the Treasury is not picking another recession, seems to think the economy will grow, but grow slowly. Um, but yeah, but there's certainly whoever leads the next government after the election is going to face some fairly constrained times and going to have to make some tough decisions. You mentioned some of the comments from economists and political parties in response to uh, the update yesterday. What were they having to say about it all? Well, I think um, kind of everyone certainly recognises that, you know, the government's constrained in just what it can do. Um, and and they, these tough decisions will have to be made. But of course, it all depends then about what tough decisions will you make because the tough decisions will be, do you haul back spending more hmm. or do actually do you raise revenue more, more revenue, which would mean obviously tax increases or new taxes. So so those sort of are the, the arguments and, and debates. And of course, you'll have parties of the centre-right and National Act talking about saying that they can find more savings. And certainly Act has put up a very, very um, kind of fairly um, bold um, plan to, to cut um, spending by getting rid of whole government agencies and by halving the size of the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment and those sorts of things. National, not so radical, but still saying that they would find savings and that they can still carry on with their um, proposed tax cuts. And, and remember, the one thing about the PREFU is it only is based on announced, you know, government decisions that have been made, government decisions. Mm. So all of the parties promises in the election campaign, including, for instance, Labor's promise to take GST off fresh fruit and vegetables, is not included in the calculations. Mm. So all of the parties, whoever leads the next government, are going to have to work out, well, how they're going to afford their policies, given uh, the books are in a fairly constrained state. So how should we be feeling by these latest set of forecasts? You know, you mentioned that they aren't as bad as some people were expecting, but they do seem somewhat grim. Well, I mean, clearly, you know, when you look at um, net debt going up, uh, you know, continuing to run deficits out to 26, 27. And remember, these are only forecasts. So we were forecast to be, or you know, the government was forecast to be in surplus a year or two earlier, and each year it's been pushed back. So it could be pushed back again. Who knows? Um, but each time it puts more and more debt onto the government's books. Mm. Uh, we know interest rates are higher. So the cost of, of servicing that debt is going up and up. It's over $6 billion now. It's expected to peak at about $9.8 in a year or two. Um, and so that's money that can't be spent elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a fair chunk of money. But I guess if you compare it going back to, to 1990, the, the reference to um, when, I guess, Prefu first came in, but in the early 1990s, 
um, debt servicing costs then were over $4 billion a year when the government spend was only $25 billion. So as mm. a proportion of government spending, much, much higher. So we've been in a worse position. But at that point, that did constrain governments of the day in terms of what options they could take for spending and other things. And it, it did lead to, I guess, quite savage cuts, including cuts to benefits, mm. um, you know, which I guess you know, a number of people have said has sort of flowed on through a number of years since. So, you know, I think the the message from that to governments today and future governments is that you do need to keep an eye on debt. Debt is a really useful thing for government to engage in, but I think most people would agree when you're investing in long-term stuff, infrastructure, that future generations who will have to pay off that debt because it lasts for a long time will benefit from. Mm -hmm. But if debt's going up simply because you're paying your daily bills, then that's not a great thing. Well, look, I think that's probably a great place to leave it. Thank you. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.